welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only. Do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guests are Andrew Locke and Greg Lehman. A feature of the Shoulder Physio podcast is to host debates or conversations between people with seemingly opposing viewpoints on certain topics within the physiotherapy and sports medicine landscape. A contentious topic that sporadically rears its ugly head is that of lifting technique and its purported influence on low back pain or injury. So to cut through the Twitter arguments and often confusing recommendations in the literature, I've invited Andrew and Greg on to the podcast to discuss lifting technique in a pragmatic, open and honest way to see if there is a happy middle ground for confused clinicians to stand. This conversation was originally recorded in September 2021 for my YouTube show on the shoulders of giants. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the conversation and for your information, for the first time in two years, I am running my one day shoulder workshop in Sydney and Melbourne in May and June 2022. Tickets are limited to 30 participants at each event. The course offers a complete distillation of the evidence base for shoulder pain management, equipping you with up-to-date knowledge, techniques, and clinical reasoning skills that are clinically actionable. If this is something you are interested in, check the show notes for more information. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Andrew Locke and Greg Lehman. Here we are. We are live. I am joined today by Andrew Locke and Greg Lehman. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming on the show. Great, man. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no problem. So we've, we've managed to make this work. We're, we're talking to Greg, who is in Canada and Andrew, who is down in Melbourne, and I'm up here in the beautiful Gold Coast. So let's get into the, the nitty-gritty of the conversation. And so today we, we? Today, today we want to talk about um, the significance or lack thereof, perhaps, depending on your viewpoint, of lifting technique, mechanics, and the onset of low back pain or injury. And I just want to give viewers a little bit of a background as to how we got here so there has been some online chatter there always is on this topic in in recent months especially the relevance of lumbar flexion the dreaded lumbar flexion and lifting so what i did was i surveyed my audience and i asked who they wanted to come on and talk about this polarizing subject and overwhelmingly you two gentlemen were the most common pick so congratulations there naturally (laughs) <laughs> before before we immerse ourselves in this admittedly very nerdy conversation on a Tuesday morning or, or Monday evening, I want to introduce both guests. So Greg, first and foremost, is a chiro, physio, and strength and conditioning specialist out of Canada. Greg has a reputation of being a critical thinker. I don't know what Greg thinks about that, but that's how I view Greg. Persistently challenging, sometimes annoyingly, to be honest, because sometimes you don't want your beliefs challenged. Uh, dogmatic beliefs and assumptions in the musculoskeletal medicine sphere. Now, despite Greg's obvious positive contribution to the profession of physio, I'm actually more impressed recently by his journey towards mastering the skateboard. And you can follow his progress over on the socials. It's always good fun. So thanks, Greg, for coming on. Yeah, mastering. 
Mastering, exactly right. So, so Andrew is a physio out of Melbourne, Australia. Andrew has post-grad qualifications investigating spine mechanics and also disc herniation. Andrew is also a credentialed um, McKenzie therapist. Most impressively, though, Andrew is the World Masters bench press record holder. Andrew, talk to me about that. What's the number? Well, actually, the number is 200 kilos, but I think the record I set was with 186. I set three national records all over that. We haven't had a national, haven't had an international judge opportunity to take it higher. Let's see if we can make it 225 this year, huh? Wow, that's very impressive. That's very, very impressive. How long have you been each dumbbell? (laughs) In each hand, yes. Pounds. Pounds. 250 kilos. Yes, that's 225 is the goal anyway. Very, Bill, very good when work. I told Bill Kazmaier that I wanted to bench press 500 pounds, he just looked at me and said, why not 600? Why not? These are the giants we walk amongst. 100%. Hence the name of the show, Shoulders of Giants. You've, you've hit the nail on the head already. Big shoulders they are. All right. So, so let's get into the, the talking points, guys, and we're going to get straight into it. But the first question I think is almost the mm. most important here. So I want you both, and I'm going to start with you, Greg, to declare your position on this topic. And also want you to tell me and tell the viewers how committed you are to your viewpoint. And are you open? Who would have thought to having your beliefs change? So, so Greg, you go first. So just to clarify, the, the topic is the onset or causation of low back pain. No. And the relevance of lifting. No, it's not the onset of lower back pain. It's lifting. It's a very different thing between pain and lifting. It's injury. So there's a difference between pain and injury. Okay, that's fine. We'll get it, we'll get into that in a minute. Mm. So I, I think we're going to go lifting techniques slash mechanics and the onset of low back pain or injury. And you can just discuss the okay. answers around that. Onset. Onset. All right. Yep. Yeah, I mean, my I'm certainly open to changing my view because I've done it through uh, my career. I mean, I had a master's in spine biomechanics 23 uh, years ago, and I was certainly on the neutral spine train. Where was that, where was um, that master's at, Greg? Is that University of Waterloo? All right. Now, I was told it wasn't under biomechanics under McGill that you actually did never did biomechanics directly under McGill himself. I don't know what that means. Well, it means he never taught you biomechanics personally. I don't, <laughs> I don't say. He, master, he, taught a, he taught a course called 620. I went there for my master's. And your he master's was, was on the, the spinal chiropractic manipulation and EMG placement. Yeah. It was also... Yeah, I know, but you don't get a, you don't, you aren't, you aren't given a master's based on just what your, your thesis is. Hmm. It's just good to know that we clarify that you didn't do biomechanics directly under McGill himself personally. That's something that seems to be implied. I, I never, no, I did my master's in biomechanics. Hmm. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. That's good. It was just, just clarifying. That was all. No, if if you like, what you ever can do is you type in my name and my initials, GJ, and then you'll see what I've published in. I have. So, and that's why I say I know directly from McGill even though you say you're one of his students, but it was clear he's. I didn't. I actually didn't say I was one of his students. That's what I see quite often. It's good to clarify, perhaps, because it's a misinterpretation about you. No, I, I, I didn't say it right now. I was there, and he was my supervisor. In that, in that master's, correct? In it wasn't biomechanics. But it was not on the biomechanics of the spine, your master's. The master's did, thesis you published was not on the biomechanics of the spine. The master's you did was on chiropractic manipulation and the yes. EMG of the muscle. That was not a oh, biomechanical and, study. And spine kinematics. 
Okay, within that study, and I've read it, it isn't in there. That's all about what isn't in there. It's only about the muscle response to the chiropractic manipulation. It doesn't measure and, movement. And 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 we measured the kinematics. So I don't, I, I don't know what you're trying to say. Like it's interesting because biomechanics is fairly specific, and that topic itself was upon manipulation, a chiropractic manipulation. Yeah. And the EMG of the mus spinal musculature. But and that's not a biomechanical study in itself. Okay, sure. I mean, I think we're getting gridlocked. So we'll continue. We'll continue. So, like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? You just so, said before that you wanted people to have a discussion and you wouldn't interrupt, and then you immediately just, interrupt. <laughs> and now I think you have this little gotcha thing. Oh, I, love I don't know what your point is. I have a master's in biomechanics. I didn't oh, say sure. that's all it is. I have a master's in biomechanics. It's not the only thing that I published on at the time. Agreed. We also did study looking at the EMG during different uh, exercises. And oh. my, my master's thesis, which is not your master's of biomechanics, your thesis, which is one part of acquiring a master's degree, just one part, right, was in kinematics of the spine, which the, is the measure of the movement of the spine, as well as the electromyogram. It was a shitty thesis. I, I, I don't have, I, I don't even need to defend it because I could care less about manipulation, but I don't really know what your point is here. Oh, it's good. Continue on. It's so weird. Like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> this is a do, fun stuff. Do, do, do we want to answer the question or not? Go for it. Continue on. Like, good gosh. Did you go straight to an ad hominem? Oh, no, not yet. <laughs> no, I think you did. Okay, no, no, actually, go on. Tell, tell, tell us more about my master's from 23 years ago should, and what I, I don't know. You're go entirely ahead. Correct. Let's hear your point. You're entirely correct. We'll leave it because I shouldn't, have I shouldn't have interrupted you. So let's continue on, just as you suggest, and we'll leave other stuff for the end. That's absolutely correct, Greg, and I apologize. Okay, thank you. Good. All right. So, All so right, Greg, so what is the original original question? So your, your position on this, as we can see, very touchy topic. And also, are you open to having your beliefs changed? Yeah, I, I absolutely am. Because 23 years ago, I don't know what I was doing at that time, but I did have a strongly uh, different view. Uh, and I like to read the totality of the literature. And it has my view has changed uh, through the years. I just don't really feel like anyone can hold very strong opinions on this topic. And if you actually look through sort of the history of this debate, through a broad range of reading different people's views on pains and different biomechanists, you'll see that this debate has never been settled. So I've chosen one side of the fence where it comes to the first onset of low back pain. I don't think that technique is that important, or at least the quibbles that so many people have about technique, like worrying about keeping the spine in neutral, or how much it's flexed. I just don't think it's something that we really need to think about. And I hold that view with pretty much technique across the spectrum. It's the same thing in the running world. We get caught up on the knee caving in or a forefoot strike versus a heel strike. And all of these things are just tiny little pebbles, which for the most part 
They might be relevant at an individual level, but I don't think that we can, and you don't even know until after someone's injured, you can't make any broad views or broad statements on a population level about the ideal way for the spine to be in terms of spinal flexion when it comes to the onset of low back pain. So I have no real skin in the game. I have no problem changing my mind. I just would have trouble seeing it changing in tonight or in the next few months, unless we actually have better research, research that has ever come out. And, we, and to be honest, the research that's been done to date doesn't really address the question. Beautiful. It's just hard research to do. And so it, it, it could be done. So my, my position could change. That'd be fine by me. Cool. Okay. So can I just summarize quickly? So you're open to having your beliefs changed absolutely when when confronted with the with compelling research. And your your viewpoint right now would be that lifting technique for the lumbar spine and also across the body may be just one element in the causation of pain slash injury. I would sorry, I would I would say just probably an element that doesn't even really matter when it comes cool. to spine flexion. 90% flexed versus 40, 50. Just you're worrying about the wrong things there. Great. Andrew, what about you, mate? Oh, well, look, as the famous Roddy Piper once said, I've come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum today. So let's enjoy it. My clinical viewpoint is one I challenge every day. Every day I test something with a patient in the clinic that I just don't expect to change. I often say to a patient, I don't expect that to change, but I have to test it just in case it did. I test my beliefs every day. Also, I've worked for over 25 years in rehabilitation and lifting, my area. People I've worked with include Ed Cohen, the greatest lifter to have ever lived, 71 world records, 10 world championships. Brian Carroll, who's lifted the heaviest weight by any human being, 1,306 pounds. I work personally with the coach of the world's strongest man and holder of the biggest deadlift in history, 501 kilos. And I've personally competed in some of the biggest contests. As you know, I've set records. Yet Greg seems to indicate that he has more science and authority on the lifting than most of us. And this is weird. Greg bounces on a trampoline and climbs walls and skateboards. You know, you have a look at his most famous student got hurt deadlifting 180 kilos. When you listen to us, look at the numbers that I've got behind me, and this is science. Facts about my approach. Lifting is clearly bounded by principles of physics and all branches of physiology. All the principles of the top coaches, every single Olympic athlete in any sport says there is a best technique. Facts. All biological tissue have fatigue and load capacity. Injury occurs when applied load exceeds failure tolerance. Injury during occupational and athletic endeavours occurs as a result of accumulated trauma produced by repeated low loads, sustained long duration, and usually a final precipitating event. Very few back injuries and lifting are the result of a single event. They're usually a result of cumulative trauma that leads to a culminating event. Injury can be defined from microtrauma all the way to complete tissue failure. I say injury is totally predictable. You don't adapt to shit technique. You get hurt with shit technique. I mean, have a look at the Meekins deadlift injury. He did a sit-up challenge that involved repeated spinal flexion. Now, that would have softened the ground substance between the collagen fibres of the annulus. That will set up a delamination of the annulus. That produces a disc injury when he end-range flexed segmentally under load with a palm form deadlift. It's got nothing to do with his mental state. It has everything to do with load, frequency, and form failure. I say it's entirely scientifically predictable. There are principles that we know and apply. There's not one club length in golf. There's not a single bike seat height. There's not one stride length in running. There's not one shoe size. 
but we'll fit the shoes to the foot. We'll fit the body to the anthropometrics and the lift. They're principles of biomechanics that we do apply. And there's more to it than that. There's also biological and physiological principles. We adjust everything to a cool toolkit of principles. Movement is neurological skill acquisition. Rehabilitation is teaching the skill to move efficiently and effectively. I can't say, probably would say Greg agrees with those that principles exist. There is not a best, he can't say, you know, there's not a best way to fit a correct golf club to a person or a racing bike to a person. And lifting positions the same. To imply that there's only one best lifting technique that you only meet one position, that's preposterous. That's a smoke screen that I actually heard from many pain science advocates. They seem to hide behind it. It's not a mature argument. It's not what anybody says or means. We say that there are a set of knowable principles with variables that an educated professional can learn to use and produce a safe lifting technique or high-performance success. A non-specific lifting technique view can only come from a person who's incompetent, ignorant, unskilled, or all of the above. There is only one best lifting position is said by no one. Sebastian Orup, coach of the world's strongest man, stated, we can't ignore the laws of physics. When we lift, we are using our body levers to move load and to optimise strength. We want to make those levers as efficient as possible. Now, put that on a T-shirt. That's a fact. Naturally, that means we have bodies that vary. We apply the principles to the individual. Strength is specific. Lifting is specific to task. We have so much evidence that there is best technique. And we want the proof. It's called the Olympic Games. It's called the World Powerlifting Championships. It's called the World's Strongest Man Contest. Every athlete there is coached, and all their coaches say they work on best technique for each lifter according to applied science-based principles. If you find a study by a non-lifting professional upon a group of occupational lifters and think that that's proof otherwise, then you'd have to be delusional. And maybe probably don't lift that often yourself. Or you don't have an idea of real research quality as applied to the actual life situations. Remember the rule. If your research outcome conflicts with the reality of solid science, then it's going to be your research that has the error, not the science. Basically, the Earth orbits the sun, and if your research says otherwise, it's probably just someone saying pain science, okay? Only a person who doesn't lift or lives in a world of denial and delusion would say that technique does not matter. There's my position. I'm open, as I say, I test it every day. That's a comprehensive position. Uh, Mike, Greg, yeah. I live any, it. any comments to add there, mate? There's quite a lot, I imagine. I think we're confusing uh, technique for performance with... Uh, <laughs> what? Okay, I'll keep on quiet. I think that we're confusing because uh, I didn't say technique is irrelevant when it comes to performance. And I think that there was a case made in there about technique for performance, which I wouldn't disagree with. What we don't have a lot of research on is the technique to minimize the risk of long-term injury or pain. That's just where we are. And we, can, we could discuss where the research comes uh, to build the case for why injuries occur. And that might be worthwhile. I just, just so many ad hominems in here just to say that if someone doesn't disagree with you, they're, they don't know how to think or they're not good scientists. It's, it's kind of a, a non-starter for me. I think that we can all recognize that we're different and we have different backgrounds and we can look at the same research and maybe come to different conclusions. That's what reasonable people are allowed to do here. Okay, so can we, can we get into the question? All right, so let's have a look at, is lifting technique important for preventing low back pain or injury? And you can talk about the difference between the two if you like, Andrew. 
Um, and, I, and I want you to sort of explain why and perhaps give reference to some to the empirical evidence base. So let's start with Andrew. Sure. Is lifting technique important for preventing lower back injury, essentially, because I don't want to, I don't want to cross too many topics. I want to be very specific because it's a specific situation. Look, is it important to cross the busy freeway or you put on a front, you just put on a blindfold, manifest a cretinous screen and say, hey, I'm safe now because I was told the evidence says I am. If you were, I'd say check your evidence. Lifting technique is a tale of two very specific cities. One is hip torque, the other is lumbar spine control. I'll give you an example. I was contacted by JP Price, who held an all-time world record, right? 2,364 pounds in powerlifting. He's one of only two people who ever squatted 1,000 pounds and bench pressed 600 pounds. JP had a problem. He was debilitated by back pain. He hadn't been able to compete for two years. He's done a lot of professionals that even ended up having hip surgery. He couldn't lie down on the freaking bench press without even having pain. Now, I had JP send me a video, and I saw his problem, I reckon, within two seconds, and I'm 15,000 kilometres away. Consider it. JP weighs a bit over 300 pounds, and that means to walk out 1,000 pounds. That's a single leg stance with 1,300 pounds. Now, you know the idea. of These are people I've got to work with. I've got to be pretty good at this. So I've got to be very specific. JP lacked a, a, a similar amount, a small amount of hip extension. As a result, he was loading himself into lumbar extension, facet joint loading unilaterally, 1,300 pounds. After my protocols and work with addressing the situation, JP, after those time, has now been 600 pounds again. He's squatting heavy pain-free. It's due to technique restoration. Part of that problem related to arthrogenic neuromuscular inhibition at the hip. That's an afferent-efferent feedback mechanism issue. It all comes back to principle number one. All biological tissue has fatigue and load capacity. When capacity is outstripped by load, you're going to get tissue injury. Let's look at some established facts and not conjecture on lower back loading. People generally don't have back problems, they have back solutions. Their back is usually their strength, not their weakness. Lower back injury occurs when your best worker, your lower back, finally fatigues due to making up for usually poor hip extensor torque. And that's commonly the straw that breaks the camels or perhaps the meekens back. You must clinically subcategorize lifting problems. You've got to subcategorize. You examine and subcategorize lifting the same way you examine and subcategorize lower back disorders. You can find people who are extension intolerant lifting, flexion intolerant lifting, load intolerant lifting. Non-specific lifting is the same as non-specific lower back plane. It's clinically useless for us. You can only be successful by subcategorizing and then you can produce scientifically based clinical reasoning. O'Sullivan, McKenzie, McGill, myself, numerous educated professionals have shown this. Let's make it clear. Spinal flexion is unavoidable. I love it. We all love it. We use it all the time. Remember, though, we're hunter-gatherers in an industrial and technological society. We weren't born to live in this society with the body that we're currently using. Lifting is about the hip axis. We often get obsessed with the back. But as I said, bending forwards is flexion on the hip rotation axis more than is the spinal flexion movement. So if you're just thinking in terms of lumbar spine, there's no wonder you would get lost. There is... Central prevention to lower back injury realistically is the evaluation and interrelationship of three important components. That is the minimization of external moments. That is the closer the load to the axis of rotation, the lower the external moment arm. That's going to reduce spinal compression forces. That's physics. That's a fact, not opinion. You want to maximize the internal torque. That means you want to maximize hip extension torque around the hip axis. Kellerland's paper 1989 was the start of a lot of things. Glute heels have the greatest potential for creating high hip extensor torque, has yet to be disputed. We basically work with that. 
Now, number three, you've got to be able to balance shear forces on the spine and spinal axial loading tolerance. And McGill and others have shown that the spine that is not fully flexed ensures that the past lumborum fibres provide a posterior shear force on the superior vertebra. If you head to end range flexion, this is where your problem is going to occur. You're going to lose that shear protection. 80%. That will, that will impose a load on the interspinous ligament, which is confirmed in the injury cascade by the Rissenden study. And this in turn creates an anterior shear force that will be amplified by the multifidus. You've lost that shear balance. Doesn't mean you get injured that first time. As I said, it's accumulated microtrauma. We've looked at micro damage in terms of collagen delamination of a functional spinal unit before the actual detection of functional changes is Guyas, 2015. Poor loading form produces micro damage that becomes cumulative and leads to injury. The hip-spine relationship is the imperative in listing. Contreras showed that the uninjured subjects have a greater range of motion in hip extension than those with lower back problems. Yeris, 2002, showed reduced hip extension range leads to reduced hip extension torque. Van Dillen, 2000, lower back problems are correlated with significantly reduced hip extension range. Brown, 1985, investigating the kinematics and kinetics of the deadlift said, more skilled lifters produce greater hip extension force. Now, this is why I believe in non-specific lifting it is an error. Poor hip extension torque does lead commonly to lower back injury. Lifting and rehabilitation is specific. It's contextual to task. It's contextual to frequency and loading. Lifting technique for the prevention of lower back injury requires hip extension, extension access investigation. So is technique and lifting in rehab important? I'd say about a 1,000 papers would demonstrate that it is. Don't confuse pain with injury in that discussion, though. Don't confuse studies on lifting with studies on tissue effects of lifting and posture. Outcome studies on lifting are usually terribly internally flawed, conducted by non-lifting researchers with ineffective loads, and usually quoted by non-lifting individuals pushing an agenda. They're not studies that are consistent with the science of exercise performance or evidence of lifting success, as we've said, at the highest level, which I think is probably the best way to demonstrate the lifting technique truly is imperative. There's my approach. Thanks, Andrew. Greg, do you have anything to add? No, it's good. I think there's uh, actually a lot of common ground in there. Mm. But again, uh, I, I didn't memorize all of it, but there's a few things. Again, what I did think that we were just talking about the spine, but what, what's nice here that you mentioned about technique is you got away from thinking that the spine is the most important thing. And you said, it's the hips. And so what we often see is you'll often see people lift like and they get into a position that allows them to get their hips into the best position so that they can produce the most force and they feel most comfortable there. And yet what I don't understand is when people focus on the spine here. So what, what Andrew's saying is I agree with get into the position where your hips are where the primary mover can do most of the work and have the load closest to you. And often with some people, that's why you will see people lifting heavy loads over 700 pounds with a very flexed spine, right? The fact like that's what I mean about quibbling over like 80 degrees of flexion or 50 degrees of flexion is silly. Like that's not really the variable that we should be focusing on. Right. And then and then when we look at the spine kinematic research, we do see that people who lift heavy loads. Right. Uh, do flex their spine a lot. And we do have to be careful with using anecdote data here, which Andrew did. But it's fine because that's kind of all that we have. Because I can name people who lift very heavy loads and they don't really care about their spine posture and they flex it a shit ton, right? You can see this with the barbell medicine guys, right? 
You know, they, they, they flex a lot and they're not worried about that. At the same time, there was an argument here. There's a bit of like a literature dump and the Goyer's paper, I know that one, that was again, a cadaver paper, which I don't think we should throw out, but remember that one. He also compared neutral zone flexion with three times neutral zone flexion. And there was 124 motor units they studied, and there was 24 injuries in those. And there wasn't that much of a difference between going to neutral zone and to three times the neutral zone. So we kind of see that. And then you mentioned this idea of shear, which is, which is interesting. And, and this might be what you were angling at with, with the McGill reference to my master's. I did not use Stu McGill's um, spine model. It's an incredibly impressive. It's an incredible biomechanical feat. And that was not part of any of the training that I've had. That's why I talk to people who have used it and who are familiar with other ones. And so what we see when people compare different spine models, although the McGill model shows that L4, L5, if you are flexed about 100% of your max versus being flexed 80% of your max, because that you're referring to the pot vent paper here, that you will see more anterior, anterior shear. That's at L4, L5. Other research groups, if we're gonna stay in the biomechanical world here, when they measure shear at L5, S1, the stoop posture has less shear. And now the most recent paper that I know of, and you might love this, it's, a, it's the Cottam Corsani one. You know this, this paper, it just came out, but Shrazi Adel has been doing this research for 30 years. They suggest that there is less shear, again, at both L4, L5, and L5S1. And if we're just talking about loads, that there's less disc shear when the spine is more kyphotic versus more lordotic. So this is the difficulty here when we make like strong conclusions based on these biomechanical models is that these bio genius biomechanists are disagreeing. So if we think I, like the concept of, oh, if you load it too much, that tissue will fail. That's a principle. Okay, that's interesting. But then the debate right now is, well, where is there more load? And so you're having these biomechanists disagree. So then we have to go to, to research where they actually follow people you know, for years in their lifting to see the onset of pain. And we don't have that stuff. And so what Andrew said, which I liked, was he was doing symptom modification. Someone came in, their back was in pain. He realized that they couldn't extend well at their hips or they didn't move their hips a certain way. Aha, you need to move differently. I'll keep you lifting with this other option of lifting. I love that stuff. That's, that's reasonable symptom modification. And I, I, I do the same. So that, that's great. I mean, that's not fancy rehab. Maybe the motor control training is fancy, but the concept of, oh, hey, it hurts to flex. Maybe don't flex, flex as much. Oh, hey, it hurts to extend. We don't extend so much. I know you lay when I simplify, but so the, the principles are kind of simple and easier, but I will respect that there's difficulty and skill in teaching someone who's probably been lifting their whole life to lift uh, uh, differently. So that's my rebuttal. I don't know where we're at with that. We're, we're both on the same page. I think in many parts of it. So something I want to just clarify, uh, Andrew, what, what, so what's your opinion on lumbar flexion? You talked a fair bit about hip extension and hip firing. What, so what do you think about lumbar flexion? as a risk factor for lifting injury? Mm, I don't have a problem with lift with spinal flexion. We've got to use it. We live with it. We walk yep. with it. We tie our shoes with it. Um, cool. It's about, it's about the basically creating the perfect set of principles that I've yet to see somebody who hits end range spinal flexion. And I'll say, I, I, I was actually saying the Meekins deadlift is a perfect example of it. That was end range spinal flexion. Okay. That, 
that spine was humping like a dog humping a cricket ball. It was seriously just a freaking U-shape. That was end range spinal flexion under load. As I said, it wasn't just that that did it, but you've got all the preceding situation. The sit-up work that, as I said, it's going to work on your flexion tolerance. I have yet to see a world champion who would hit end range flexion. Flexion's fine. In fact, I like to use it because I think there's a lot of science behind how to use lumbar spine flexion. Go there. This just takes a lot of skill to identify where a person can be safe. And we're not going to probably start our beginners there because we might just get them working with understanding lifting. We might transition as they become more elite if we can find something better, but we've got to earn the right to move the position. And as we say, with the best coaches, we try and start with the most obvious positions that work with that client. It's very rarely, in fact, I've never seen it, that anyone's going to start their lifting career under a coach in end range spinal flexion and lifting. But we don't say, shit, you got to stay stuck in lordosis. We don't say you can only be in neutral. I think there's a lot of value when you look at a person setting up. Totally, no issue. Spinal flexion is a beautiful thing. How else do you think the lifting up an atlas stone is going to be achieved? You've got to get your spine around that thing. Essentially, it's probably spinal movement under load that we'll talk about. Cool. Greg, we can. So I've, I've heard that argument that, so I, I don't know about Adam's uh, case in particular. Uh, I do think it would be nice to look at a lot of, like I talked to Tyson Beach about uh, doing this. I don't know if you know Tyson. He worked, he did his PhD with Jack Callahan. You mentioned Jack. And he is a great biomechanist in there, this area. He's the one that's looked at the ability to change spinal flexion under load. In a, in a few studies. And I know he would love to look at some heavy lifters. I'm just not sure that people actually, when they're lifting their max weight are really flexing in the deadlift, not the outlet stone. Like it'd be great to have a document of how much people really are lifting in the deadlift. Cause it's definitely more than people think it is. That's, that's finally being recognized these past few years. They're definitely not staying in neutral. Although it's very hard to say what the hell neutral is. Right. <laughs> You can do it with like, a, you know, if you take the bones out of the body, uh, but it's hard to say. It does seem like people are lifting and deadlifting, even when they look, it looks like they're in neutral and they're at like 70 to 80% of max. No doubt so at I, all. What's that? No doubt at all. Yeah. And so I do know that McGill's model, the model would be most concerned with that anterior shear that you mentioned around 80%. Tyson and I was talk talking about this and he went back and read the model. <laughs> He's like, it's 80%. That's where the ligaments sort of kick in. That's where they get out of their, um, you know, the toe region and go into the elastic region there. So, so that's interesting that maybe the, the me message through the years has kind of changed. It's not about staying in neutral. It's about not going to 80%. And the irony of that, if you know, Patricia Dolan at all, she wrote a paper in 98 saying, you can't stay in neutral. And I, I emailed her a few years ago. She's like, I'm only worried about 85% max flexion as soon as you get more than that. And so th that's the thing with, I mentioned that Kadam Khorasani, and I'm open to this, is they had people going to max kyphosis. I don't know if that's max flexion. Well, so he said there's not, and he wasn't lifting a lot of weight. I'll, I'll give you that. So maybe they do more, but, but this is what I mean. Like we shouldn't have strong opinions here on this topic. It's not well-researched enough, especially with something like a like deadlifting. You just don't have the data to say how much people are flexing and then where the loads are really going. We better have strong opinions on it or else you're going to end up with an absolute highway full of crashed lifters. Well, here's the thing. Like, 
Well, your your athlete that you mentioned, JB, the other argument is like, why are we sparing the spine? Are we sparing the spine at the cost of the hip? If that guy had hip surgery, maybe he should have been lifting with more flexion his whole life and he wouldn't have got a hip injury or a hip replacement or whatever he had. Like that's that's the irony of this stuff. It's like the movement has to come somewhere. Well, and so like we we I I just it see I just think it almost boils down anecdote here because you're a lifter who thinks oh I shouldn't lift bend my spine completely all the way and then some other people are like I don't worry about my spine it bends a lot who cares I'm safe as long as I progressively do it. Well, it's pretty much as I clearly stated. It's load specific, frequency specific. You can run, you can go lift 16 kilos in end range flexion, probably quite safely. But how many people do you know who end up saying, I just bent over to pick up my sock? There's a whole bunch of lifestyle factors there that are important as well. And the Frost 2015 paper, which we can discuss, also demonstrates that movement which performance. One? The FMS one? The, the one at the Pensacola Five Fighters. Yeah, it was how to change movement quality. Exercise-based performance enhancement and injury prevention for firefighters. Yeah, but they didn't measure injury. No, no, injury parameters or injury markers, yes. Well, there's potential surrogates, but they haven't been quantitatively linked with injury. And what does it show? It shows that coaching and understanding of movement transfers to outside the gym. Yeah. And that's the point of saying, yeah, if you don't address the lifestyle factors and a person comes in with end-range flexion, perhaps there's a big chance and there is a big physical... It's straightforward. It's going to be under the laws of physics, biology, and physiology. We know discs creep. We know that exists. So if a person sitting at their desk in posterior pelvic tilt all day decides to come in to the gym and go pick up a 16-kilo kettlebell, well, if they hit end-range flexion and they've had already posterior disc creep, the mechanism could already be there for that final straw to break. That's why we're probably wise in how we address it. Yeah, I know. There's just a lot of assumptions there. it's still based on, even if we stay in the biomechanical world, the assumption there is that there's more uh, load on the disc with that peak flexion and not every biomechanical paper, not every biomechanical paper is agreeing with that. Look at at Nackinson then saying, of course, we decrease the hydrostatic pressure by loading the facet joints, don't we? We know that decreases the pressure. Yeah. So what's the other end of no, it? No, no. Look at I'm telling look at the Cotton Corasani paper. They measured interdiscal pressure. Mm-hmm. The the influence of lordosis and kyphosis was was negligible. Well, Patricia's Dolan work also supported that more than 20 years ago. So this is the thing. Like if you take a broader view, like and read a lot of different people, like this debate has not been resolved. People have been saying different things through the years. Right. If we take this really broad view here, like it's not unreasonable to have a different opinion. <laughs> it's not unreasonable to have a different opinion, but an opinion can be wrong. Let's head into question three. Anyway, let's end in, the next part because we're heading there. We don't want to get too lost. Okay. So let's go to all right. So this one's for this one's for Greg. Let's let's give Greg a a moment in the sun here. So does technique or biomechanics have any role in the onset of low back pain? And maybe just quantify as best you can perhaps the percentage i don't know it's not a linear thing like that but how much time would you spend on a lifter looking at their technique perhaps um in the onset of low back pain or injury Uh, honestly like i if i think what's important is i think that we're focusing on the wrong areas when we just focus focus on spine flexion right so i'm I'm comfortable what i would advocate is that people get into a position where they feel strongest 
where they feel most under control, where they're not, if they start to squat or deadlift, they're not going to like, uh, like lunge to the side or lose their balance. Cause I'll totally agree that technique matters. If you're squatting and someone jumps on your back. Yeah. There's going to be a biomechanical overload, but I, I think once you get into a good position where you feel comfortable and you train smart, you can adapt to that. I mean, if you're training the deadlift or the squat through a week, how many max, like greater than 80% deadlifts are you doing? You know, 20, like in terms of total reps with all the, you know, three to five minutes recovery between sets and each set is just what, like two to four reps. And it's just such a low, like low number of things here. So that question there is the same one that we started with. I'm not sure how it's any, any different. I, I will answer another question because <laughs> we're already talking about this one. But when it comes to pain, right? I am. I do think that learning how to change technique and having lots of different options, which sometimes is less flexion, but sometimes it's more flexion. Sometimes it's you know probably more hip and training the hips. That seems really reasonable to me. So, like, I still think there's utility in biomechanics. It's just really hard to say like that technique is going to be trouble. As long as you're not like jerking the weight, but, and you're slowly doing it over time and building up a tolerance through the years. I really have trouble looking at someone saying, oh no, your lumbar spine is flexed 90 degrees. We need to get it down to 78 degrees or sorry, 90% of max. We need to get it down to 78% of max. It just doesn't make sense. And then the whole idea of, I know people will say, oh, it's not, it's not the flexion that's bad. You, or sorry, it's not the flexion moment that's bad. You just can't re-extend once you're flexed, right? People say you lock it into flexion. Well, that's an hypothesis that isn't really that well supported when you look at the kinematic data. You know, in general, uh, you, when you start the lift from the floor, yes, the first 15 to 20%, it's the hips. But after that, under high loads, your spine is moving. It's not staying flexed until the end. So I've never really understood that idea like it's moving there's nothing wrong with the spine moving as well because it is that would be a nice study though how well you could change that maybe that'll help for symptom modification but don't get that one andrew just touched on that so i thought i'd throw that out there cool Uh, i'll just quickly ask another question greg so so what about if somebody comes in with a and i think i know your answer here but i want to hear you say if somebody comes in with low back pain it was sustained during a deadlift maneuver or movement and they're a little bit sensitive into flexion how would you sort of go about uh rehabilitating that particular person or helping them on their rehabilitation uh, rehabilitation pathway would you look at flexion and their technique once they're less sensitive would you avoid it for a period of time would you expose them to it i know it depends on the person it's yeah 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 but- no it's it's it, honestly that's actually the uh crux of like every rehab encounter. That's the expose versus uh, protect debate. And it's always the challenge that you have. I think when you, and I do wonder sometimes we have these big debates between big names in the field if they're seeing different type of people, you know? So I often see, I think, avoidance copers. They're not moving their spine at all. They're afraid to move. So of course we're going to do some exposure, but sometimes or more often when I work with athletes, they're endurance copers. And they keep doing the same thing over and over again that aggravates them. So 
you know, calm shit down, build shit back up is the mantra there. That's where changing kinematics, but more looking at total stressors on the person is helpful as well. You've got to calm things down and probably do less and build back up. And here, this is this might be ironic for you guys, uh, <laughs> but when I do teach someone to deadlift, I actually kind of recommend sometimes someone being more neutral. And <laughs> you guys are like, what are you talking about? So listen, because of what it goes back to exactly what said, because, but it has nothing to do with my worry about the lumbar spine. It's because that person's like a runner or they're a shortstop or a soccer player. And that's the position that they get in when they're playing their sport. Right. Or because I would think if they're a runner, we just want them to work their butt muscles more and their hamstrings more. Right. It's a better stimulus for the other area of the body. <laughs> Yeah. So you use that so, as a way to, to help you in your yeah. rhythm. So the same thing with someone with pain. Be like, here, you, you feel a lot better when you lift with less flexion. You want to keep training? Yeah. Okay. Let's do that for a bit. But when I deadlift, uh, massive loads, Andrew would freak out. I feel a little bit better with a more relaxed and less flexed spine. It's only flexed about 75%. I can force my spine to be flexed about 62% of its max, but I feel comfortable at 75 and it feels better for my beautiful butt. Because you got weak glutes, yeah. All right, Andrew, what do you think, mate? <laughs> I love what Greg said there because Greg <laughs> indicated quite clearly he subcategorizes and he makes things specific to the person. Yeah. You know, that's what I always say we do. That's why I don't like non-specific lower back pain because Greg just said the same sort of thing. I, if it's a problem in that position, I make a specific change. And absolutely, I think that in the regard to biomechanics in injury and rehabilitation, that's why I like the Frost Paper 2015. It shows that coach and understanding movement, it transfers outside to the functional life of the gym. And that's important. The outside part is probably more important than the inside part. Technique transfer in daily life, it's the imperative to minimise the accumulated Poor movement patterns. I like the Aikida and McGill 2012 on the implications of movement, posture, stiffness, stability in regard to daily biomechanical loading. Good implications there. Now, Nackhamson in 83 stated clearly, we certainly all agree that motion segment instability exists as a clinical problem. Biology is a mistress who keeps score and you're going to pay her price. Once again, biological facts, not statistical analysis of poor studies. Imagine doing that sit-up challenge spinal flexion loading under the deadlift and thinking you're exempt from biology. Of course you're going to get injured. If you injure a passive structure for a rehab situation, such as a disc, the effect can actually be permanent. If it's not addressed through specific rehab technique, biomechanical means, and understand that loud and clear, unless you know how to rehab the effects of lower back injury, it can have a permanent dysfunction on your client, and that's not in their heads or how they think. Strength is a skill, and skill comes from practice. Perfect practice produces perfect skill. It can transfer outside the gym to daily living. To say there's no principles, just do it how you like. Let's see how it goes. Let's apply it to hang gliding. Let's see how long you live. To try and say there's no best way to lift, well, let's find out how long it takes you to get hurt. Physics governs us all. It governs biological tissue loading and by that extent, lifting as well. It governs everything. No matter how you speak to your patient, physics doesn't care. Now, let's look at the spine. Who did the hip? Basically, this is three postures. A lordotic posture position will load the facets and unload the intervertebral joint, JP. A neutral position will unload the facets and entirely loads the intervertebral joint. The injury you may observe here would be an end plate fracture, and we'll discuss that. 
end range flexion position does load the disc anteriorly, it's consistent with the common disc injury mechanism. Biomechanical injury is not random, it's observable, assessable, and predictable. I think that's a really important thing is knowing that you can predict injury by knowing these things. If the posture is near end range segmental flexion and segmental con control flexion occurs, then the passive disc is exposed to load. There's that wonderful Cholwicky and McGill injury under fluoroscopy that's always worth looking at. Understand, disc mechanics are clear, they're well studied, and there's mountains of published evidence. That's why it's absurd to tell a patient with a chronic lower back problem that they are safe and pretend perhaps that their problem might be behavioural. If you don't restore normal function in rehab, they're probably still likely to have a movement disorder. Now, Scandal and McGill, I know Greg will love that one, showed a reversal of disc prolapse with repeated lumbar extension which is consistent with multiple, if not countless, studies on disbehaviour. Altman, Sanzeros, Tampier, Donaldson, all is very consistent. An intervertebral disc will bulge and it will be driven in the opposite direction to bending. It's movement with load at the end of the story. That's physics. It's a fact and it's been published multiple times. When segmental stability of that passive system, a disc, for example, gets injured, then the neuromuscular system has to be able to take over the dynamic control of the lumbar spine. You need to know how to do that. You have to be educated to do it. It's specific. It's not random. Muscle contractions produce stabilising load. Look at Comfort and Mottram, 2001. Stability dysfunction is diagnosed by sight and direction that relates to symptomatic pathology. Global muscle retraining is required to correct directional dysfunction. I love O'Sullivan back in these times too. He was supporting Punjabi's neutral zone hypothesis. I love his thoughts there. It was specific training is also consistent with the assertions that motor learning and control are not simply a process of strength training, but it does depend on patterning and inhibition of motor neurons. It is the acquisition of skills occurring through selective inhibition of unnecessary muscular activity, as well as the activation of additional motor units. This is consistent with all the world's best coaches. I like McGill's work. I love Cholwicky's work, Basmajan, Edgerton. There's heaps. It's essential to reinforce motor pro programming and rehab. You've got to reinforce motor programming such that the desired patterns will occur naturally. You need to learn to move in the best pet pattern for that body. It's not automatic on return after injury. We've got a lot on that. Dysfunction post a disc injury is absolutely predictable. And did you know you can actually predict dysfunction from an MRI? Remember, I didn't say pain, dysfunction. A couple of Tell me what dysfunction is before you, you get into that, before we avoid get into the nuances. Altered normal movements. Best way to say it. So it's not moving as it would have pre-injury. Okay, um, how do you measure that? How do we measure it? Yeah. Um, well, perhaps it has been best said coming out fairly soon in regard to some of the work I'll go with. But once again, if we looked at a person who had become injured, and I often see, would see that in the clinic where they would tend to be moving from their back when that's the thing that's getting hurt and you've, you've lost their hip extension control. So maybe arthrogenic neuromuscular inhibitions happened around that hip. So as a result, they're actually, and this is, we would take hours now because I would actually have to take you out clinically how I would work with a patient in this regard. So measuring, it's actually very, very much what I would do in a clinic. I would look, and this is where experience comes in, is clinically I'm in there every day. I can see people move it. And this is where I'll go into. That's why clinicians are like great hunters. Good hunters don't need to see the animal. They can smell the air. They can see fur on the ground, they can see tracks in the snow, and they can tell you what the animal is. Now, a poor hunter becomes a vegetarian. A good clinician is like a good hunter. 
we know what the problem is because we know how all those behaviours exist. Looking at nuts and fruit, there's so many situations here which you would clinically look at it yourself, Jared, I know, and you would see a person and you would be able to, with experience, know what perhaps is behind it. There's a guy called Gladwell wrote a book called Bleak, which is about how expertise can pick up things before you're consciously aware of them. And that's clinically, of course, where I am. Now, I just look at the studies there. Like a good hunter, I can look at all the evidence. So, you know, I think we'll go into Richardson Hyde, things like that, where we know that inhibitions because of multifidus atrophy, well, that means it's not moving the same way. You get atrophy of the gluteals, for example. You won't get the same hip talk. Hip talk. So it's really what you're looking at. You're a clinician and you're a good hunter. If you look at Nutson in 44, for example, way back, proposed an instability diagnosis from flexion extension radiography. Sonnenberg and Barr back in 83, they showed that muscle control in the lumbar region was significantly lower in patients with chronic lower back disorders when compared to normal. So we know it's there. We don't actually have to see the creature to have to measure it. We can know the evidence. Sihoven in 97, patients with chronic lower back disorders had disturbed joint motion and abnormal EMG, regardless of how you speak to them. Now, Richardson in 90 proposed neutral zone decreases with muscular activity. So we're talking about neutral zone control here. You've got an injury, you'll have increased neutral zone, perhaps at the disc. So it's clear that you have to know how to address these things in the clinic. Now, often I would use anti-rotational work in it to improve sagittal plane, transverse plane applications. Technique really matters in rehab, and that's super important. So when Greg says, hey, you know, just if you fail a load, just load it more and they're going to adapt to it, that's pretty preposterous. Ed Cohen. So what, sorry, when did I say that? Oh, actually, it's on quite a few of your um, YouTube videos. Um, load it more and they will adapt. You have said that. Do you deny actually saying load it more yeah. and they will adapt? No, it, and it's context specific. Yeah. So sometimes when you're not loading something and you need a stimulus to adapt, you need to stimulate yourself. Well, perhaps you need to put the context into those things because it wasn't very I clear. I certainly do. I would listen to all of them. Because, yeah, to load it and say it's going to adapt, that's pretty dangerous. So you would agree. Oh, so you would agree with that. If a person comes in with an injury, you're going to change that because that so, load... If load someone it, comes with a hamstring tear, I'm going to load it. It's going to adapt. Lower back problem in lifting? It depends. Good to hear. You're making things specific. We have to pull things apart. Nothing no is shit, not specific. It, it's not a specific diagnosis to say it hurts when they flex. That's not a diagnosis. Uh, who said it was a diagnosis? Is it part of a clinical reasoning pattern? The point of non-specific low back pain is saying that you have no idea where the source of nociception is. How useful Just because it hurts people. when you flex doesn't mean that you can make an, a, a, a decision about where the tissue is damaged. Well said. And how useful is that in clinical reasoning? It's not. What, Simple, in, in research, what I'm saying is like to, to denigrate people for using the term non-specific low back pain, that mm -hmm. is, there's an issue with that. Well, what's the people issue if it, do doesn't help us if it doesn't help us clinically, what's the use of it? That's what I'm saying. You don't need to have this a tissue-specific diagnosis. Good. Why do people use it then? Why do people use what then? Non-specific lower back pain. Because as... they're being academically honest. That's what they mean by it. When you say something is non-specific... It doesn't mean that you can't have an opinion of what the contributors to that pain 
is. Oh, so you, you could say you're training too hard. You're not recovering. You need to work on your sleep. You have a shit ton of stress in your life and you're coping with your life stress by overtraining. And then the thing that aggravates you, you keep doing in the weight room. But can I tell you what tissue is? No. So as we said, it's clinically useless. And do you ever use it in your lectures to indicate any situation where you would say exercise has demonstrated a poor outcome? Would you ever use a study which has said non-specific lower back pain study of such and such exercise indicates that there's no application? Uh, when I talk about exercise and low back pain, I'm incredibly cautious to say how great or how poor it is. Uh, and, and because again, like, okay, now we're on a different topic here. And this is the idea. If you tailor your exercise to pro your program to someone that your results will be superior. We agree. That's how you No, No, I don't agree with that. This is what's surprising. It's surprising how often that doesn't work. And you could look at the research of Paul Marshall and Mitchell Gibbs who looked at tailoring a spine stability program to someone versus a general progressive overload program. And there wasn't any difference. You mentioned the Linda Van Dillen paper. She has one, she did the same thing a few years ago where there's no difference, but she has one out now that's more recent where there was a difference. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, there, there's, there's so many assumptions in here. You, you mentioned Joan Scannell's paper where with repeated extension, the disc will migrate anteriorly. Well, what about the Balkovic paper out of the same lab where with flexion was followed by extension, it led to more damage in the disc. So we gotta be careful with just cherry picking our papers here. You know, like there's, again, and I, I'm, I'm gonna guess when you make an assumption, you like, you keep saying you have these principles as if you know where there's more load on the spine, right? It, there's no principles here. That's where the debate is in the biomechanical world. They can't agree where there's more load. Like read the Shirazi Adel Labs papers. They're disagreeing. Read Peter Conan's work. Read Kingma's work. Not everyone's agreeing that there's more stress on the disc when there's more flexion. I mean, that, that's what Patricia Dolan said. But again, like I said, the Shirazi Adel Lab is not saying that there's more interdiscal, actually more interdiscal pressure. So I, I, I don't get how people can be so certain. You say that you understand principles here, but you're ignoring such a massive body of research that disagrees with how you apply those principles. Well, Greg, it's funny you ran away from something very interesting there. Because oh, I ran away. Please tell me what I ran away from. Well, you just said that you don't tailor things to the client. That's, I did not say that. All right. So I told you a research paper that didn't tailor it. No, I just say it was very interesting because you were, you actually ran away from a very interesting thing where you were heading to saying that you don't change people. And yet previously you said if a person had pain in that position, I would change them. And that was going to the clinical application. That's where we were. And you kept going away and clinical application. So you said you do specifically change individual characteristics of an individual. I might specifically change in some people. Mm. So like, I'll give you a running example. Uh, sometimes we might, in the short term, have people take shorter strides when they're running if their knee feels better. But I would not say that that has to be done forever in the future. And the same thing with when someone has low back pain, they might benefit from not flexing their back and being in a more neutral posture for a few weeks. 
but I wouldn't say that they have to avoid that forever. And I think Mackenzie did that. Like you have a wonderful background there because everyone misrepresents Mackenzie and says he just does directional preference to extension and then never goes back into flexion. Like, I think that's horrible that people do that. You must struggle. Like you must know that more than me, but it's the same idea. It's a temporary modification. I don't think people have to do it forever. Well, that's beautiful. Thanks for letting me clarify. We're coming to a really good point there is what we do is we're actually taping the patient as an individual and we're listening to specifics about each individual patient. And that's where I was coming with the concept of non-specific lower back even being quoted realistically doesn't give us any clinical use. Everything is specific about a client. Yeah, I think let's move away from non-specific lower back pain. That's a whole other conversation. And we got got to midnight for that one. Yeah, so... (laughs) So, so Andrew, can I ask you a question? So you've said a few times that physics governs us all. It does, yes. It we can't run all. away from physics. I assume you mean would you say only so? in physics. Well, yeah, what yeah. would you say, Garen? Jared, does physics rule us all? Uh, yeah, but all branches of physics. So do you think, yep. do you think pain is a Newtonian phenomenon? No, I wouldn't say it's a Newtonian phenomenon. So, so then how does the Newtonian not principles the guide... Pain is not where I'm living. Pain. I'm into lifting injury today. But do you think pain is a manifestation of injury? I think pain is a very complex topic. And that's what that's where we find that wonderful misinterpretation of Nackhamson. Nackhamson was very good at saying things were specific. Then people go, but Nackhamson said nobody knows, knows the source of pain. Yeah, he moved into pain construction and understanding. And that's where it was that context. Pain construction and understanding, I've worked probably with pain science since about 96. I was actually in the in the United States and I did functional capacity evaluation and we worked with psychologists. I met patients who are quite considerably, I think, would have been almost certifiable by the psychologist at the time, the psych, psychiatrist. I've seen many manifestations of pain and there is as many manifestations of pain as there are human beings, pains of personal experience and personal construction. I seem to be very fortunate that I can address situations with clients and I think that's one of the clinical skills that comes with seeing over 100 and perhaps 10,000 patients now is you can identify who's got a fear, you can delay that fear, but you also are able to do it as a perhaps an experienced clinician in such a way that you can take them to the movement pattern changes comfortably. There's a lot to it. You would know every human interaction, whether it's you with your client, Greg with his, me with mine, is going to be different. And our ability and experience comes comes from that wealth that we have from every single patient we build upon. So the pain experience is very much that therapist-client in relationship for us, and every single patient is different in client. And that's the tools that we have developed. I'm very good at clients who have behavioural-influenced problems in regard to perhaps the problem they come and see me with in regard to pain. And I'm good at being able to understand that person, perhaps refer for if that needs behavioural modification, I am not a behavioural specialist. I will refer to the appropriate professional. That's where I would come with behavioural problems. And the cognitive assessment of pain is going to come from so many influences. But that's not where I'm going to have to go with the clients. I have great success perhaps because of my nature with and relationship with them that I can move well with a client who has different patients who have different assessments of pain. And clinically, that's okay. We are friends in that clinic and they trust me. So the construction of pain, I don't go to the physics of pain. But you have to. If you go to the physics Why? of lifting an injury, then you have to look at the physics. Because, because do you treat people in pain? Mm, yeah. But then why don't you try and understand pain? 
Who said I didn't understand it? Who said I don't understand human beings who are sitting in front of me? Yeah, I know. So you, you understand it's... But I, I need to understand the physics to understand them. But then why do you go off of people who don't understand the physics of lifting? Because physics of lifting is far more about moments and levers, isn't it? What do you see the physics of pain being then, Jared? The physics... The, the, the processes of, of pain, we'll say, which, which physics underpin, is extraordinarily complicated. And built upon by multi-dimensional factors. And uh, explain that, please. We can't, we, can, we can't reduce it to one factor is, is kind of where we're at here. Well, what physical principles are you using, physics? Pardon me? What physics are you using? What principles are you using there? Of pain. Mm. You just said the physics of principles are related to pain. I want to know the principles you're dealing with. So I there's, there's an argument that, that pain is more of a quantum physical event, okay, which is it? inherently un unpredictable. Seriously, what's that got to do with the motor arm in a lift? No, nothing. I'm, I'm, well, I, I, think, I think we're getting here. a little bit confused here. No, it's very, I just pointed out they're very different things, didn't I? Yeah, yep, totally. Greg, do you have anything to add here, mate? <laughs> no, I, I tried to stay in the mechanical world just to, <laughs> just to, just to avoid this. But, but that, is, that is the crux here. I, I, I think Andrew led with that, that he wanted to talk about injury. Yeah. And so, I mean... That's that's the crux. Like the, these, maybe these biomechanical variables are very important for tissue injury. But the question would be: is like, uh, what percent of the disability is really like that? This epidemic that we have of low back pain is due to these injuries. You know, like I, I, maybe maybe that's an area where you're living and the people you are seeing, if you are seeing lots of true injuries. I don't know if that's that's true or not, um, but I, I would just question if that's really what's going on in the world is that the, the people who are suffering and who are disabled with low back pain, it's because there's actually like a massive tissue or not massive that there's some uh, tissue injury that's contributing to that, that sensitivity. And I, I don't want um, to straw man Andrew, because I know that he, he would say it's the, the tissue would just be part of it and the other things are going on as well. So, no, so like, I, I, it, you know, so like we got caught up on the disc there for a bit, you know, and I, like, I'm curious, like what percentage of low back pain is caused from the disc? Like, I'm not even sure we can say that, you know, like, the, well, we, we have the Peterson and Laslett paper that only says we're, we can diagnose it if there's centralization, right, or the directional preference there. But that doesn't tell you what percent of, like, the, the number of people who have low back pain throughout the world uh, that's, you know, dr driving that. And again, I, I, again I, I reject the hypothesis that it's that peak spinal flexion that's causing the disc injury. Look, Even you, you mentioned, oh, did you say the Parkinson Callahan study or the Goyers and Cal? You said Goyers. Because the Parkinson one, along with the Wade study and the Varus, they they kind of show like neutral really isn't protective uh, for disc injuries. Like they don't really, they occur at the 30%, you know, the lower loads. That's right. I just and don't, I, I kind of reject this idea that we know what loads, even if we stay in the injury world, are, are, causing injury i just, just know that that's sort of what i think that's the crux and where we'll where we probably won't find common ground here which is which is difficult because i think we'd find common ground if we said we all need to train smart 
You need to like not jerk the hell out of your weight. You need to slowly build up when you're having rough, you know, psychosocial weeks, maybe don't beat the shit out of yourself in the weight room. You need to be smart. You need to recover. I don't think we'll disagree there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we should be putting our emphasis or working with a coach like yourself, where if performance is your goal, I'm probably not the person you want to work with where you, you want to get into the positions that allow you to lift the most weight. And I'm totally comfortable with biomechanics being important there. I'm just less comfortable saying like, that is a movement pattern that's going to cause an injury. I just, I, I just have trouble saying that's a poor movement pattern. Cause when I try to peel it back and go back to the first principles here, I, I just, I don't see the research for it, or I see such conflicting work. I think your point was beautiful, Greg, is what, Hey, it might be population. Let's based. cut it right there. It's beautiful. And put, it, put, on, put it on the cup, all right? You said it well. We might see different populations, huh? I think yeah. so. Absolutely. And I, I think that's when people think, like, they get confused when it looks like Stu McGill and, and uh, Peter O'Sullivan are so, so different. And they're both, like, you know, excellent researchers and have so much to offer people. I do wonder if they're – I would guess McGill sees endurance copers, people who need – to back off, modify their technique to let shit calm down. And I guess that O'Sullivan is seeing like a lot of avoidance scopers. And that's why he's be like, we need to get exposure and deflection. And then unfortunately, I think people get too tribal and they run with that and they misrepresent what both of those two thinkers say and they they pigeonhole them a bit too much. That's great. That's guess. what we see. We have a population bias. It's, un- it's evident anyway, it's going to happen because that's, that's what we see. That's what we deal with. I get the ones, it's not the monster under the bed that's in that's their injury. It's not in their head. It's going to be the technique. I see the high-performing individual who has a tissue load issue and got injured by it. I'm going to see so, lots of those. So, Andrew, you've quoted Peter O'Sullivan a few times, his old work. What do you think about his radical change in, in beliefs about lifting and back pain? <laughs> I haven't read anything of his latest work at all. Okay. You're just deliberately avoiding it or what? No, I'm, I'm, probably, I'm probably the 10 times most busiest man in the world. I've got okay. commitments absolutely everywhere. I've got yep. so many businesses. Okay, cool. I would, love to, I would love to have another one of me who could sit down and spend all the time reading as much evidence as possible. It'd be great. What a wonderful world. But I'm dealing with, as I said, I've got a worldwide waiting room. I get people who are piled up on Zoom calls all day from all around the world because that's Thanks for fitting us in. With. Thanks oh, for fitting us in. Eight o'clock in the morning wasn't <laughs> too bad, you know. <laughs> Good. All right. So can we move to some con- concluding comments from the both of you, if you want to? 30 seconds to a minute. Uh, Greg, if you if you want to start, mate. Again, like I just, I know I'm, I'm, I'm such a, on the fence person, but I, I really, I think we're focusing in the wrong area when we get caught up on like spinal flexion. That's what I thought we were talking about here. That, and same with biomechanics when it comes to the disability and suffering of people with low back pain throughout the world. I think biomechanics are incredibly uh, useful when it comes to performance. I think they're useful to teach someone to move differently, to help them temporarily when they have pain. Uh, I just don't think that we can make strong conclusions about uh, that there's certain principles, technique principles, when it comes to specifically to the lumbar spine uh, that that tell us what tissues are more likely to get injured. I, I, I think that could happen in the future, but I think when you look at the totality of the evidence uh, and read a lot of different researchers, you should come away with it like shaking your head and being like, holy cow, this is impressively complicated and you should feel pretty humble. That's all. 
Andrew? Yeah, look, I think it's, it's important that we understand that optimal lifting technique, we all understand, does not mean a single technique, right? We all understand we're talking about a set of principles that govern a particular individual. And that's pretty much like Sebastian Oribe said, the coach of the world's strongest man. I can give two very different lifters the exact same set of cues and the movements might look quite different. But I'm still applying the biomechanicals principle to both lifters to make their movements look as efficient as possible. And that's pretty much what it comes from. I've had three professional athletes who, when they hurt themselves deadlifting. Now, when I assess their mechanics, I mean, that's a very small population of people who have actually eventually said, you should never lift that bar from nine inches off the floor because your hip sockets are really brutally deep. You're actually accommodating very much actual back to make up for that. But if I put the bar at 12 inches, you can deadlift quite well and safely in regard to the back issue you've had problems with. Now, because those athletes, like Greg was saying about a runner, short step, because it's not their profession to deadlift, but they use it in their training, fine, I've adapted the position to the person. And that's what it's about. It's adapting to the person. But we have parameters we work with. Look, surgeons don't use butcher's knives. They use scalpels. And I think as clinicians, we should be about the same way. We need to be able to pull things apart very specifically regarding the individual. Now, I'm always talking about the injury component here, but that's behaviour as well, isn't it? It is just as specific to the individual. So that's how it all comes together. Without exception, successful clinicians, we determine specifics, and that's what we do. Greg, you, me, whatever, we're talking about specifics, and realistically, we don't do this with generalities. So I just say there's no such thing as a non-specific lifting technique. There's no such thing as a non-specific human being. That's pretty much where I go to. Cool. Surgeons use scalpels and yet surgery still doesn't work. So there you go. All right. Sometimes it does. <laughs> I'm just joking. Thank you. Thank you both for, for coming on and being vulnerable and having this conversation. I've really enjoyed it and I'm sure everyone else will. I really want viewers and listeners to, to look at the evidence and viewpoints that you both presented and actually scrutinize their own beliefs a little bit and try and challenge their own beliefs on both sides of the debate, honestly. So I think the profession will, will benefit from you both honestly and openly discussing this complex topic. And after all, isn't this kind of the aim of scientific professions is to put your ideas out there, put your theories out there into the world and have them scrutinized. And if they survive the severest of scrutiny, then maybe you're onto something for just a little while until it gets falsified eventually. All right. Thank you, Greg Lehman. And thank you, Andrew Locke. This has been fun. I'm sure everybody's going to love it. And I'll see you all next time in Melbourne or in Canada. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Magic. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Andrew Locke and Greg Lehman. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Ugamba people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.